say you all look a little bit different from up here. Um, when uh, Bob asked me to uh, fill in for him, um, uh, for those, that, we will be in John 2, by the way. You can go there while we're, uh, I'm uh, entering into this. Um, when he initially asked me, um, you know, you always hesitate. You want to make sure that your heart's in the right place and you're not doing it out of the wrong motivations and, and all of those things. But I thought about it for not very long and I remembered that this is something that I'm already doing. I'm already doing this at our work. And I want to thank you all, first of all, for praying for that. Um, we have people that have come and people that have gone, people that have stayed. Um, but one of the things that I've that has caught my attention as of late is that a family member, a husband, has started to come. And it makes you think that it's not just because they're there that they're there, right? God calls everyone, and he, when he speaks, those that know him hear him, and that really is the difference. We're going to hear from him today. I think this is quite possibly the, uh, <clears throat> the preeminent miracle of Christ, um, in that it's the beginning of all of his signs and wonders. If you remember the culture that he was coming from, that was what they always asked for, remember? They always wanted to see a sign or a wonder to, to authenticate the person that was speaking. Well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> that's not what we do now. But that is what Jesus does here. But as we start to go through this, I want you guys to think about where he meets them. He meets them in their need. And that to me is just, it speaks volumes to every single person in this room as to where God met you when you came to faith. God came, God convicted, the Spirit proclaimed Jesus to you through someone who spoke about Christ to you or you read it in the word and God brought you faith. He brought every one of us faith. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this little story. It's only 11 verses. I didn't want to tackle anything too large. I mean, um, we've got like a half hour here, so uh, it's kind of hard to unpack an entire chapter. But this is like a snapshot of what God has done in everyone's life. We have, we see these, uh, these two groups of peoples. <laughs> it's been said from this very uh, podium, there are two types of people in this world. They are the saints and the ain'ts. It's only two, it's only two groups, right? So as you're hearing this, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, He's speaking to you right now, Okay. He, he is literally speaking to you in a way that can be used for your salvation. Um, so let's go to uh, John chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read it through, and then we'll come back and kind of unpack a little bit. <clears throat> now let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself perfectly in every way that we need to know about you. 
you have made the clearness of who you are, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, in everything pertaining to life, uh, in the correction and exhortation, so that we may be adequately prepared for every single thing in our lives, Lord. We thank you that you and you alone have done this. May we receive what we hear today and be impacted in such a way that uh, we are changed into the likeness of who you are. We again pray for Bob and Barb on their trip, that you would bless that uh, union of the wedding that they're at. Uh, I know that they're on their way back today, but uh, we just ask that you watch over them as they travel and uh, bring them home uh, to a safe so that he uh, may be a part of our um, teaching again and Barb be a part of the music and all the, the wonderfulness that it is having them in our body. We pray for the teaching today uh, that Will's words will be impactful not only to us, but that it would cause a change in our thinking and in our attitudes and our actions. We again give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. John chapter 2, verse 1, going to go through to verse 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and he said to him every man serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely then he serves the poorer wine but you have kept the good wine until now this is the beginning or this beginning of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. Um, just a little bit of uh, history here and some uh, quotes from people that I hold uh, on a very high regard. One being Dr. Martin Lord-Jones and the other Spurgeon chime in on this. So I would like to read this. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks about this command in his sermon to John 1 John 2, 1 through 11, and how Christians are to listen to th this advice of Mary. He brings up the importance of the balance between God's part and the Christian's part of this command, which takes the form of, of his activities being lived out through his people. In order for this to be lived out the Christian, in the Christian life, they must live in obedience to the commands of the Lord. They must listen to 
for his still small voice, the Holy Spirit, and pursue the things which draw them closer to him. It is through this obedience to the Lord that they will experience him working in their lives and be able to see firsthand his great promises stepping into the new possibilities that he brings. So it's when we listen that causes us to change the way we think and the way we perceive life. And then it causes a change in who you are in reality, how you respond to God, how you respond to people. Charles Haddon Spurgeon comments on this passage. It was needful for him, Jesus, to speak to his mother with somewhat more, more of a sharpness than perhaps her conduct in itself alone may have required. We're going to talk about that. So her son felt beyond to say to her, woman, what have I to do with thee in such a matter as this? I am not thy son as a miracle worker. I cannot work to please thee, nor if I work a miracle as the son of God, it cannot be as your son. It must be in another character. What I have to do with thee in this matter. And he gives this his reason. My hour has not come yet. It was a gentle rebuke, absolutely, absolutely needful from the presence of all that would follow. You can easily picture how Mary took it. She knew Christ's gentleness, his infinite love. How for 30 years there had never come anything from him that she grieved in her spirit. So she drank in the reproof and gently shrank back, thinking much more than she said, for she was always a woman who laid up these things and pondered them in her heart. She was impacted in a way that not only changed the way she thought, but we're going to see it changed the way she acted. It changed her at her core. And as we said before, we have two groups of people in this world. We don't know when this reality became a hope for them, ultimately. Because we can look at the back end of the passage and it says that they believed. What did God account to Abraham? And why? Why did he account him righteousness? Because he believed. He believed. He believed what God had revealed to him at that point. God's progressive revelation is such that he reveals himself however he sees fit. And whatever time it is, we can use another word, dispensation, it's not necessary. But wherever he has revealed himself and how he has revealed himself is exactly the way God intends to bring people to faith. Verse, uh, verse 1 and 2. Let's go back to verse 1 and 2. That's just the opener. Sorry, it's a little long. We're already, I'm already, no. I'm never going to get through all this. <clears throat> 16 pages. Um, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. <laughs> Sorry. It's been a while since I got to do this, so it was, it was but I'll, I'll, I'll I, we can streamline. It's all right. We'll get out of here about noon. Um, on the third day, 
There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. First thing I want to note, me and Mary was there, and the disciples were invited. Did you catch that? That gives you the idea that maybe she was a part of the leading of the wedding festival itself, which could then lead to us realizing that she was probably a family member, probably helping with the festivity in some form or fashion. We'll see why here. I'm going to jump over a lot of stuff here, but we'll see why here in just a minute when she orders the servants. But some have surmised that uh, the reason that the wine ran out was because of the unexpected arrival of disciples. They were invited. So it's, it's kind of hard to to get that from it. Some do say that. Um, much smarter men than me. Um, but the third day aspect of it is uh, from the third day. And I gave you guys notes of all of the, the scriptures that I pulled this from. And you can look at these later, uh, later on uh, in your day or your week and kind of get the more fullness of what uh, everything is here. But the third day from the call of Philip and Nathaniel in the previous passage is from one, uh, chapter 1, verse 43 and 51. So there's a sequence of days that have been parsed together, uh, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, and day 6, uh, which brings us to this third day uh, aspect of this verse here. But a little bit of geography. Um, for those who have, just by a show of hands, who has been to Israel? I know Bill has, Amy has, anybody else? Okay, I'll, I'll do a little bit of geography that kind of help us set the stage. Israel is kind of a teardrops country. Uh, Jerusalem sits in a high country about two-thirds of the way up in uh, the mountain range that goes all the way over to um, modern-day Iraq. When you come out of Jerusalem, you go east and north and you drop down out of the mountains. And when you get into the Galilee, you literally go down into a bowl. That's why when you read about how uh, the storms would come out of nowhere, the Sea of Galilee, that's why. The, the wind would come across that bowl and it would just whip up the water out of nowhere. So knowing that, it was they, they don't know exactly where Cana was at, but it's been uh, estimated that it was about 16 miles or so west of Capernaum and probably about nine miles north of Nazareth. So think this direction. Um, but the reason that's important to know is because from there to where this is occurring is about a, a, a well within a day's, uh, three days journey. So from where they were at in the previous chapter to where they are now, it's, it's very easy to make that travel. That's the only reason I wanted to bring that up. The disciples were obviously invited because of their connection with Jesus. Since only Nathaniel himself was from Cana. And you can find that in John 21 too. I'm skipping over an entire page. Um, the traditional understanding of one man and one woman is clearly in view here. If there needed to be an explanation on the subject... The master teacher, Jesus Christ, would have taken the opportunity. But he didn't. Um, 
Let's go to 1 Timothy 3, 2. Just keep your finger in uh, John 2 there. We'll be back to it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. No, I'm sorry, Titus 1. Sorry. That was another point. <laughs> I'm not going to make that point. Titus 1. Actually, it's 2 Timothy 2.15. Titus 1, 6. Let me read uh, from 5 for a little bit of context. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, and the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Um, I'm not going to comment too much on our culture today as to... Um, the varying opinions of marriage. Um, I'm sure we all can grasp our own thoughts of that. I'll leave that alone. But uh, it suffices to say that God has made marriage a sacred institution. And Jesus, by his uh, doing this miracle here, um, not only sanctifies it, but sets it in stone and says that it is the only marriage that is acceptable. I'll leave that alone. A little bit of history. Weddings were arranged and pre-planned. The celebration, I'm going to probably butcher this, the shupa was about bringing the bride to the bridegroom's house. The ceremony itself would last seven days, about seven days. A great celebration, sometimes late into the evening and into the streets at times. A celebration at the bridegroom's expense and hosted by not by him, not the bride's family. Not like traditional marriages today. It's actually opposite, right? We see that the bride's uh, parents are usually the ones that uh, foot the bill, but not in this time. When they arrived for the feast at the bridegroom's house, once they entered the doors and, and, and they were shut, and the wedding ceremony began, the bridegroom would spread the tip of his garment over her, then they would proceed into the wedding chamber, then into the feast. There were many friends and relatives. Some would travel long distances. I think of Jesus and Mary right off the top of my head. This was not something that they, it wasn't a neighborhood situation. They left their home to go to this celebration. Um, typically the fall was the time of um, marriages in the Near East because of the harvest. That's when the, all of the food was plenty. Uh, the wine was, we'll see later, flowing uh, sweetly. Um, but it was not unheard of to have it happen in other times. But most likely this was in the fall. Uh, betrothal in the ancient Near East took place before the actual marriage. And it was considered as binding as marriage. And this could take six months to a year. Um, the groom himself, we're going back to uh, John 2, by the way. Um, the groom himself would prepare. He would save. He would. This is something that he would be doing for a very long period of time. Okay, it's not like today where we decide to get married on, you know, January 1st and we're married on January 30th. That's not how it worked here. And 
It was in dedication to God. It was in obedience to what God had revealed to them. It honored God. Um, Deuteronomy 27 mentions the betrothal, stating that a man is exempt from military uh, contact or conduct in light of betrothal. That's how important this was to the system. Um, John 3.29 says that he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine is being made full. This is John the Baptist. And he is saying that his joy is made full in the bridegroom. Um, Let's go to Revelation 19. I wanted to tie in Revelation. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. What an encouragement for us. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory, give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We're going to see that that obedience ties ties directly into what we see what Mary does. We don't know when she, or if, she came to faith. There's many things that say that they believed. It's hard to put a uh, an ironclad stamp on anything. Only God knows. Only God knows. But when we see people believing in what Jesus and God has revealed, that is what God uses. So I would think that that would be salvation in my mind. Um, John the Baptist references Jesus as the bridegroom and identifies Jesus as the long-awaited king and Messiah. In the Old Testament, Israel is frequently depicted as God's bride. You can see that it's on your paper, Isaiah 62, Jeremiah 2, and Hosea 2, 16 through 20. I was going to read that, but we're, we're not going to. Uh, you can look that up for yourself later. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, uh, is that the church sanctified is sanctified through her living for him. So it's the actual actions of what we have had revealed to us that cause us to be sanctified. And sanctified is, what is Sanctified. Set apart. Set apart for the work of God. So, when God speaks in that still small voice, and you act upon that still small voice, what is that? That's faith, right? It's plain language. That's faith. But it's sanctifying faith. It's the faith done in the right heart that when you stand before him he will look at it and it will be something that will bring not just joy to him because of your obedience but in some arenas 
crowns. Now, we shouldn't be working for crowns for the sake of crowns, but that's the result. And that should be the result of every heart. We should love our Creator so much that no matter what else happens outside of our lives or inside of our lives, He is the most important and He is the motivation because of His love for us, because of what He's done for us. Every time I think about that, I, get, I just get choked because I know that there's nothing that is in me that is good apart from Christ. And I'm just so thankful that he provided, um, well, I could get, let's move on. <clears throat> on the night of the ceremony, the groom had, and his friends would go to her house. They would escort her to the groom's house. Um, where the ceremony would begin. You can see uh, uh, some of that in Matthew 25. There's uh, depictions of that. The whole celebration ended with the actual wedding itself. So I see, you know, in my only, uh, in my limited uh, brain space, um, I see God the Father coming for me there. I see Him providing faith for me. I know, it's, I know it's a bit of a stretch on the parallel, but do you see it? God is the one who is the author and arbiter of faith. He's using this as a word picture for the groom to bring his bride. It's amazing. Um... And we're only in verse 2. This is not going to go well. The brother of Jesus. Interestingly enough, John never refers to Mary by her name, and he never refers to himself by his name. He never calls her mom. Never. Not in the Gospel of John. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure other folks need know this as well, but John never refers to himself in the Gospel of John. He only refers to himself as the what? Loved. The disciple that Jesus loved. Catch that. If you don't catch anything else out of what's coming out of my mouth this morning, catch that. John, quite possibly, scholars say that he lived the longest, went through the most, did short of Christ. Island of Patmos, uh, they don't really know one way or the other if he got off the island or not. But the point is, the man lived for Christ for the rest of his life. And I just pray that it is something that we can all do. Um, but I believe that the reason he, um, one of the reasons, not all, but one of the reasons he did that was because he wanted all of the glory to go to God. He didn't want to have any credit. And that's huge because, again, that should be our own motivation. The only thing that we should be concerned with is glorifying God. Now, we heard Wednesday night that we get this idea in our heads of glorifying God is like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to. You can glorify God in the enjoyment of who He is in your life. And that's, that's, that's a whole other conversation, but I thought that it was just awesome. I don't know if anybody was here Wednesday night, but you were here, weren't you? It was just. It's a very encouraging message. 
Um, I'm going to jump over this. I'm going to go right to the heart of the matter here. We're going to go to uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. This is the bulk of our uh, of the point of the passage here. Um, now, when when we Jesus, Mary says to Jesus, they ran out of wine. And he tells her, what does that have to do with us? Some folks that give a little bit of commentary on this, I think is um, noteworthy, but some uh, say that this is a rebuke. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't seem as, a, as though it's a rebuke. It seems as though he is defining his ministry. Um, this is really talking about his crucifixion and his ascension. And she's bringing attention to this because she's quite possibly either heard of or was even there at the baptism with John the Baptist. So she knows that he's more than just a mere man. Okay? She hasn't seen the fullness of what his power is in this time or in his time because this is the first miracle. But she knows shows she goes to him now a side point here is um, a lot of scholars say that uh, um, you know the father was uh, not alive anymore um, in this the Jesus's stepfather because he was not the person that Mary went to so that speaks to the you know uh, authority of the the family type of a thing I don't know I, I, I find that hard but what I do realize is that she goes to him and no one else. It's not like she goes to multiple people in a crowd screaming and saying, I need help, I need help. She goes directly to the person that she perceives that can help her. She says, they ran out of wine. He says, I, this is not why I'm here. And his mother says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, meaning no more room. That's key. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. So you see Mary recognizing that the authority in the room is not the bridegroom, is not the head waiter, but is Jesus himself, who is a guest. He's not involved with any of the, the, the function of the festival. He was invited he was a guest, but they go. She goes to him for help, for the resolution. I think that's just amazing because she could have literally gone to anyone. She could have said to the head waiter, "We're out of wine," and it would have brought great shame to that family. She knew that. She knew the culture. She knew that if she did that, it would literally put the bridegroom to shame, and who knows where that could where the ripple effect with that would go. No. 
No, she goes to Christ. She hasn't seen him rise from the dead. She hasn't seen him do any miracles yet. But she knows that he's not just a mere man. So she goes to him. And she says, plainly, they ran out of wine. And she says, plainly, do whatever he says to do. Now, Jesus says, fill them to the brim, meaning no room for anything left in the pot. Can't add anything to it. Um, So that when they dipped into the pot, the only thing they could retrieve out of the pot as the implication is what they poured in. Does that make sense? That's huge because when they dip it out, not only do they get wine, but they get the choicest wine. A wine (laughs) that the head waiter had never even tasted. A wine that was not limited by the grapes of this world. A wine that was not limited by anything of this sin-stained planet. That's, that's, he doesn't do anything that's not perfect. He does everything that is perfect. So much so so much so that when these men dipped this wine out of these pots they went directly to where Jesus told them to go. And a person who was let's say an expert and wine and how it was administered and what it tasted like and where it came from and all of the different facets of this wine. What did he say? This is the best wine I've ever tasted is essentially what he said. He didn't say, well, it's wine and it's kind of sour, but it's wine. So, you know, he changed water to wine. No, no, that's not what he said. Why do you bring the best wine last? Because it was a common practice that when the wine started to flow, and there's a whole section on that in here uh, that I went through, but drunkenness is not something that is uh, ordained by God. Let's, Let's put it that way. As a matter of fact, it's highly um, sinful. But this man, even at his point in this festival, we don't know how much wine they've drank, but he could taste how good this wine was after drinking all of that other wine. That's how good what God does is it's not just good it's perfect i got 3 minutes the uh the response did you catch it in verse 11 read verse 11 
Read verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples, what? Believed. Do you believe? Do you believe? Every time I get a chance to do this, I ask this question at the end of whatever I'm doing. And I think it's the most important thing that can be spoken of when preaching or giving a talk or teaching Sunday school. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you know Him as your Lord? Does He guide your steps? Do you feel the love of Christ in your life? If so, this is an encouraging story for you. Because Jesus is the one who motivated all these people to do what they did. And they did it. And the outcome was in the wine perfection. But the outcome in us is sanctification. Is glorifying the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the takeaway is, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a head waiter, if you're a servant, if you're a disciple, the same exact thing that God uses in people's lives for salvation is the same exact thing he uses in others. God never changes. His message remains the same. If you do not know him today, he is calling you. He is saying to you, here is a mountain of evidence that I am the creator of the universe, that I am the great I am, and that this is the testimony of who I am. And if you understand that, and you see yourself as someone that's separated from God, you can be made right with God today. Ask Him for forgiveness. Turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus.